but he would not be dissuaded from going. The council before which he stood was made up of the emperor, the authorities of the church empowered by the pope, a number of other religious people, and some of the public. And after a brief debate, Martin Luther was asked, would he or would he not recant what he had written, what he was teaching? Now, Luther knew that this was not just about Luther. And as he challenged the machine of the church and the pope that had ruled Europe, the church and pope essentially for centuries, he was representing, as he stood there, thousands of Christians. He had become the champion of an unofficial groundswell of people to the point where the power of the church was seriously endangered. Luther was, as one pastor has put it, overwhelmed at the immensity of what he was doing. And so rather than giving his answer, he asked for time for one day to consider his response. And the next day, the hall was crowded, it was packed, and he was again asked, do you or do you not repudiate your books and the errors which they contain? And Luther then gave what has since become his very famous answer. He said, unless I am convicted by scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of popes and councils, for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. God help me. Amen. So before a hostile religious leadership, knowing that it might lead directly to his being burned as a heretic, Martin Luther stood firm. He was motivated, above all, by his knowledge that Jesus lay claim to his life and that he had surrendered it. And we, as scripture-only, faith-only Christians, are the spiritual descendants of this courageous man. Now go back in time 1,500 centuries and you have the Apostle Paul. Paul too stands before the religious public, the religious leaders, political rulers, and is unmoved from his conscience and his convictions concerning the Lord Jesus. We're going to be hearing about that over the next few Sundays and the next several chapters. Now, Paul, you may remember from previous weeks, is on his way to Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost and to fulfill a vow. In the first three verses of chapter 21, Paul sails from Asia to the city of Tyre, where the ship has a layover. And when in Tyre, Paul seeks out some Christians who are there and spends seven days in their company. And in verse 4, we read, And through the Spirit... They were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to come back to that statement in just a few moments. So when the visit was over, Paul goes with them down to the beach. They pray together and say their goodbyes. And then Paul, by ship, makes a short hop to Ptolemais and then a little further to Caesarea, where they have an extended visit with the disciples there. And here Luke makes an interesting Detail draws our attention to something in verse 8 that they stayed at the home of Philip the Evangelist, one of the seven. Do you remember Philip? 
In Acts 6, he was one of the seven men chosen by the church in Jerusalem to oversee the distribution of food to the widows. In chapter 8, because of the intensity of persecution under Paul, Philip fled to Samaria where his preaching sparked a revival and then he was involved in the conversion of an Ethiopian official. And his story in chapter 8 ends with him in Caesarea where apparently he takes up residence and raises a family, we learn today, made up of at least four daughters named Melissa, Kimberly, Jennifer, and Tammy. No, I made that up. So 20 years later, here's Paul, a guest in Philip's home, and I wonder if they talked about the old times. Hey, Philip, remember that time I tried to have you killed? Uh, That's right, I fled for my life that day. And while they're there in Philip's home, Paul experiences another blast from the past. Twelve years ago, in Acts chapter 11, a prophet named Agabus has come down from Jerusalem to Antioch, where Paul is. Now, Agabus comes from Jerusalem to Caesarea. And again, he prophesies, and he acts out this message. He takes Paul's belt from him, ties up his own hands and his own feet, And makes this pronouncement, thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him over to the hands of the Gentiles. Well, as soon as they heard that, everyone again tried to dissuade Paul from going to Jerusalem. But he said to them, what are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart. I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And then he goes to Jerusalem. Now this is twice in our passage that Paul has had his friends try to talk him out of risking his life in Jerusalem. And both times the Holy Spirit has been involved. But Paul himself said in chapter 20, verse 22, that he felt constrained by the Holy Spirit to go to Jerusalem. But his friends understandably tried to convince him otherwise. They could hardly say to him, bye, have a nice time going to Jerusalem and being killed. But Paul could not be moved, and in the end they had to entrust him to God, pray, and say their goodbyes. We go on from there to verses 17 and 36, where there's another episode where Paul, what he expected and what his friends feared, happens. He comes to Jerusalem and meets the elders of the church there, including James, Jesus' brother. And Paul shares with them what God has been doing among the Gentiles, and they praise God. But then they say to Paul, Look, there are thousands of Jewish Christians here in Jerusalem, and they're zealous for the law, which means they still value their heritage. They still practice so many of the practices associated with Judaism. Now, I don't think they're Christians who are stuck in the Old Testament, trying to earn God's favor by trying within themselves to keep all of his commands. But James says that they have believed. And this terminology in Acts always unambiguously refers to Christians. But James also says to Paul, basically, you have a reputation, Paul. 
they have been told not just that you say that Gentiles are not obligated to obey the law of Moses to be right with God, or even that you tell the Jews that they cannot be saved by obeying the law of Moses. Jews and Gentiles are both saved by faith in Jesus Christ. That question had been addressed, dealt with in Acts chapter 15. But Paul, they have been told that you actively tell the Jews to forsake Moses and the customs. Now, Paul knew that keeping the law and keeping up the customs could not in themselves earn forgiveness. But he also knew that many of those customs still had meaning, that the prayers and the singing of the Psalms were still meaningful practices of worship, that the observance of Passover, even circumcision, as a physical reminder of being part of the people of God, was not out of bounds if one remembered that one became part of the body of uh, God's people in Jesus and not because of circumcision. Paul himself had had Timothy circumcised in Acts 16. Also in Acts 18, verse 18, Paul had taken a Nazarite vow as described in Numbers chapter 7. In fact, it was this very vow that had brought him to Jerusalem. So Paul absolutely did not tell the Jews to discard their heritage. But the point was that Jews in Jerusalem had been told that this is what Paul did. And James is concerned that a preventable and unnecessary issue will cause conflict in the community of Christians in Jerusalem. So James' solution is that Paul's sponsor four other young Christian Jews who are under the same vow that he himself is under. In this way, Paul will publicly but silently show that the accusations against him are false. So Paul agrees to do this, and he goes with the four men to the temple to officially begin their seven days of purification. And then near the end of those seven days, he returns to the temple, but... Some Jews who have come from Asia for the Feast of Pentecost, Jews are there and they recognize Paul. And presumably, I think, they were among those who have slandered Paul in Jerusalem. And they shout out, this is the guy. This is the one that we've been telling you about. They had also seen Trophimus the Ephesian in Paul's company elsewhere in Jerusalem. And jump to the conclusion that Paul had brought Trophimus to the temple. Now the temple was set up in such a way that there was a courtyard, an area for Jewish men. Outside of that, there was a courtyard for women and also a courtyard for the Gentiles. And the Gentiles and the women were not allowed to enter the place that was reserved just for men. And if Gentiles entered the the Jewish men's courtyard, they would do so on pain of death. And there was a sign posted that said, I quote literally, exactly, no foreigner may enter within the barricade which surrounds the temple and enclosure. Anyone who is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his own death. So thinking that Paul has brought a Gentile into the court of the temple, 
A mob gathers, seizes Paul, drags him out of the Jewish courtyard, closes the gate behind them, and begin to beat Paul to death. And it's only the intervention of Roman soldiers that save him, but they have to arrest him in order to do that. And so Paul's third and final missionary journey comes to an end, and his life as a prisoner begins. And the book of Acts will end four years later with Paul as a prisoner in the city of Rome. So this is the story of Paul's arrival at and arrest in the city of Jerusalem. But having been warned about what would happen to him in Jerusalem, Paul will not compromise his convictions. He is consistently motivated by one thing and one thing only. Jesus, all for Jesus. And he expresses that conviction, that motivation, in our passage today in two ways. The first and most obviously is his willingness to give up his life, if necessary, for the sake of Christ and for the sake of his service to Christ. Now this has been true of Paul right from the beginning. Maybe he was forever impacted by his witnessing the martyrdom of Stephen at the hands of a violent mob of which Paul was a part. It's Acts chapter 6 and 7. And when on the journey to the city of Damascus, Paul himself had a life-transforming encounter with the resurrected Jesus. And at that point, Paul knew suddenly that his whole life and self were now at Jesus' disposal. And sure enough, the Jews in Damascus plotted to kill him, chapter 9. Then the Jews in Jerusalem were trying to have him killed, also chapter 9. On his first missionary journey, he was stoned and left for dead in chapter 14. Another plot in Greece was formed against him in chapter 20. And in Ephesus, he told the elders of the church, later in chapter 20, that he counted his own life as of no value compared to his service of the gospel of Christ. And in between all of those things, Paul was persecuted, slandered, imprisoned. Paul was always willing to surrender his very life in the service of Jesus. Now, I I don't think that that's a choice that we have to make today, though perhaps someday we will. But there are many in in the world who do face that decision every day. Did you know that more Christians die every year in the world today because they are Christians than at any other point in history? Across the world, on this day, Christians are making the same choice, that, or faced with the same choice that Paul was, and they're making the same choice that he did. And Evan, in his baptism, was making the statement that he and his own life was now surrendered to and belongs to Jesus. Does yours. And what if he asks for it? And you probably ask, wow, if it came to that, what would I do? And I think that God gives grace in the moment and for the moment. But also ask this morning, does Jesus have my life? 
Because if he does, then he has everything. Because there is nothing that exists of which we can rightly say, this is mine. Not a house or car, not a child or a church, not my future, not my retirement, not my time, not my right to relax after work, not my desire to have my spouse be more understanding, not my Facebook page, not my music collection, not my hobby, not even a pair of socks, not my body, not my life, not this day. It all belongs to Jesus if we have given him our life. Paul said elsewhere in Philippians chapter 3 that I count everything as loss compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Is there something of which you need to say this morning, this is not mine? All for Jesus. The second way that Paul expresses his surrender to Jesus is much less dramatic but perhaps for us, much more difficult. He chose to graciously respond to the unfounded criticism of others. Paul had been slandered. A lot of people, a lot of Christians, believed things about Paul that were not true. And not only that, but those things had to do with his very ministry and his actions concerning his own people and his spiritual heritage. Now, Paul had no trouble firing off a a salvo of rebuke when it came to attacks on the gospel itself. But what does he do when the attacks are against himself? He could have issued a public statement. He could have stood in the churches or in the temple and said, you know, I've heard that such and such has been said about me. Well, let me set the record straight. What would you do? I've had to ask myself that in the past. How have you responded? Anger? Gossip? Self-justification? Or grace? Forgiveness? Dialogue? Paul accepts James's suggestion that he simply and unobtrusively fulfill his own religious vow. And Paul agrees to support and pay for four young Jewish Christians in their religious vows that do not contradict the gospel. See, one of Paul's deep convictions concerning the gospel of Jesus is that it means unity among Christians. And that this unity is of greater importance than his own reputation. All for Jesus. And Paul was more than willing to make whatever concessions he could if it would diffuse conflict among Christians and help strengthen the witness of the church. And how about us? How are we doing at the old saying, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, in all things, charity? And it was precisely Paul's absolute surrender to Jesus above himself that allowed him to show this kind of grace. Think back to the things that have bothered you 
or that you have been critical of in relationships, in the church, at work? How many of those things had to do with the essential gospel of Jesus Christ? For me, it has been very, very few. Paul said this in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. For though I am free of all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win more Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. And I do it all for the sake of the gospel, motivated by all for Jesus. And so Paul's response to his criticism in Jerusalem is to act as one under the law so that the Jewish Christians will understand that the accusations against him are simply not true and that therefore an obstacle to the Christian witness in Jerusalem will not be impeded or hindered. What do you think? Has conflict in the church ever turned people away, not only from the church, but from the gospel. In your experience, has that ever happened? I think we can learn from Paul. To the point of death, to the point of simply accommodating on a non-central issue, Paul always expressed his surrender of himself to Jesus and to the service of Jesus. And in the chapters to come, we will see him standing before the religious leaders and then before governors and kings. And he'll be saying, essentially, all for Jesus. All I am and have and ever hope to be, my heart is captive to the scripture, to Jesus, to the gospel. I cannot change that. For to do so would be both unwise and dangerous. I cannot do otherwise. God, help me. Amen. And to that, we say, Amen. Let me pray. Lord, it is only in your will that we are free, as the song also says. And Paul soon will be in chains. He'll be in prison for two years and then brought to Rome and in prison for at least another two years. And yet he was free because he was surrendered to you, not bound by anything that he clung to. He was free because he was living his life the way it was meant to be lived, responding to your call on him to serve you. And that is where freedom is. And we say and sing that our life is yours. And we reaffirm that today and ask by your grace and your power 
that we will remember at all times that all that we are and have is yours. And we remember now as we celebrate communion the fact that you gave all for us, that you held nothing back. You obeyed your Father absolutely and completely. You laid everything down, including your life, for us. And we now remind ourselves to lay down our lives for you because it is right and it is good. Because we ought to and because there is joy and freedom there. Will you remind us of that now in these next few moments as we gather around your table and remember your death and resurrection? In your name, Jesus, we pray these things. Amen.